Let's talk voiceover, Zach Hanks. Should I say Zach. hello? Yeah, I, yeah absolutely. Hello. And this, this is where the conversation goes. So let's let's just do this again. Ready? Okay. Let's talk voiceover, Zach Hanks. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, you can say let's. Let's or talk voiceover. Hello, Sounds great. All right, take it one more time. Welcome. <laughs> okay. I literally had no idea what to do. Go ahead. Let's talk. Let's talk. Let's talk. Let's talk. Zach Hanks is a voice actor, director, and coach from Atlanta who's been on stage, on camera, and on the mic in franchise games like Call of Duty and Mass Effect, animated series like Star Wars The Clone Wars and Aqua Teen Hunger Force, commercial campaigns for Chrysler and Toyota, and in the classroom as an assistant professor at Stephen F. Austin State University in good old beautiful downtown Nagadocious, Texas. Man after my own heart, teaching, directing, and acting. Let's talk voiceover, Zach Hanks. Let's. Awesome. <laughs> How you doing, my friend? I'm good, man. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Oh, thanks for doing it. Uh, I've always enjoyed uh, the time that we've had together, and, uh, you know, I even tug my ear occasionally, so it's all good. Likewise. I still laugh when people call it a show. It just... <laughs> I don't know. It just... It's, it's, it's just... Randy and Brian shooting the shit, and once in a while, someone's silly enough to join us on the phone call. I mean, that's really that what good. it turns out to be. You're that good. You're, you're dripping with charisma, among other things. <laughs> <laughs> I've been accused of a lot of things, but I've never been accused of dripping with charisma, mister. If charisma were a goo. <laughs> it's, a, it's a slow leak. <sighs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that. Now that sums up my life a little bit better. It's a slow leak. So, Zach, I never, you know, I've never asked you this. Um, how did you get to the teaching gig? Oh, the uh, in at SFA? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was a funny thing. Around 2012, I was in uh, I was in Los Angeles. I was still continuing to gig, but things were starting to change. I made most of my career in video games and the biz was changing. I, I sort of jumped in at kind of a what I thought was kind of a peak for voice actors. The, there were a lot of really interesting AAA games being made with really interesting scripts and um, there and a lot of interesting characters to do. And, and then over the years, they were casting more and more celebrities to play the leading roles. Uh, I was sort of a, a frontline grunt, you know, playing, you know, Soldier This in Call of Duty and Soldier That in Medal of Honor. And those are great. And they keep the lights on and they can be fun to do. But eventually that was the bulk of what I was getting. And I, I think I did maybe four different titles in a row that were all that kind of game. And it's all the same dialogue. You know, it's all grenade, grenade incoming, uh, contact, mag out, I'm hit. And so uh, it's almost like I could just go home, record, you know, all of these lines and then just send them, you know, <laughs> send them an MP3 or send them a WAV file yeah, with all of that stuff. Do you want character one, character paid. two, or character three? Because here are all the lines and scripts already done. <laughs> well, pretty much. And and, they're the, and like I said, they're the same for every millet, you know, for every yeah. uh, first person shooter. So the work was starting to get a little dull. And, you know, I had lost interest in on camera. The the voiceover work was, was you know, like I said, was starting to, to wear a little thin. And then in the fall of 2011, I got sick. And I'll spare you the gory details, but uh, I recovered fully and it was fine, but I was couch bound for about three weeks. 
and I could audition, I could go in for gigs, but, but I couldn't hunt. You know what I mean? Like I couldn't hunt for new clients. I couldn't hunt for new work. And all of a sudden it dawned on me how fragile my career, my income, all that stuff was as a lone wolf, you know, hired gun. And my, my wife and I wanted to start a family. We wanted to own a home and we just, uh, started to see ourselves on kind of a hamster wheel. So it was time for a change. And since voiceover was starting to lose its luster a little bit, but teaching wasn't teaching. I was teaching classes out of my home uh, in video game voiceover technique, as well as uh, doing some dialect coaching. I decided, well, let me maybe go all in with this. I had, um, I I have an MFA, which is a a terminal degree and qualifies you to teach at the university level. Yep. Um, And so I jumped in, um, I got a, you know, I got a gig, it was at SFA and I decided let's, let's go, let's try this on. And my wife had, you know, she was an actor, she had done, you know, TV work and voiceover work, but she had been ready to leave Los Angeles years before. And uh, we also wanted to be closer to family and my family's in, you know, here in Atlanta and her family's in Knoxville, which is just a few hours from here. So we decided to try it on. And so that's, that's kind of how that came to be. Uh, I wanted the illusion of security that a salary brings. How did you find Stephen F. Austin? Of all places, <laughs> they found me. It, it, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't specifically targeting SFA, um, okay. but the market for tenure track positions in the U.S. has been an immovable flatline for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, you have to wait for somebody to retire, for somebody to die, for somebody to leave uh, to leave the business. Um, right. Well, well. They need more and more instructors, but they're not creating more tenure track positions. They're getting those instructors through adjunct instructor positions. And that's, um, you know, low paid slave labor. Oh, I know. Um, I've adjunct. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a from a labor perspective, it's kind of a bad scene. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, I, I put my materials out there um, and uh, cast a, a wide net. And um, SFA was the fish that, uh, that bit. Wow. That's very, very cool. Yeah. yeah, back in the 90s, I actually taught uh, theater at a high school. It was a college prep school out of Indianapolis and um, absolutely loved it. Yeah. It was one of the most rewarding times of my entire life. You're able to take these these kids who are old enough to really start to understand, but who were still still needing to grow and learn. And it really was fun to be able to take a kid who went from being able to repeat lines that they had memorized to truly becoming a character, even if it's only for a few moments, right? Yeah. And and you can see the magic and you can see the inspiration. And that that is one of the most rewarding things I've ever done in my life. Teaching young people is extraordinary. Yeah. And you also taught at Butler. I mean, because uh, you had me come in for a class when you know, Brian and I actually both met each other in Indianapolis 20 ish years ago yeah Some odd god god forsaken years ago and yeah <laughs> and so my teaching in at cathedral high school in indianapolis turned into also picking up and and bringing in a little bit more of the business side of things and i taught copywriting copywriting and advertising and the whole creative process at butler university that was a little bit different but much like you i was able to really get into teaching performance and like I said, I don't I don't know that I've ever done anything 
that's been quite like that. The one-on-one coaching is good. Being able to give a workshop here and there and, and that kind of stuff is good. I even do media training now, right, with people who don't have any clue as to what to do. And I give them some of the pointers and the tips, and then we kind of do role-playing and all that stuff. But, man, there's just something about teaching theater that is absolutely engaging and energizing, and it just fills you up. I had a similar experience. There were um, aspects of my time at SFA that um, that were really, really extraordinary. I think the thing that sets it apart for me uh, from say one-on-one coaching or teaching a six-week class or teaching a workshop or or anything like that is the amount of time you get to spend with the students. Yeah. The fact that you really get to go past coaching, go past directing, go past teaching and into mentoring. And mentoring is a, it's a different and much more intimate and much more lengthy animal than just teaching. But even even teaching a class with a student that you're not particularly mentoring or, or that you don't follow after that semester, you're still working with them for, you know, for a good solid three, four months, which you don't get to do with, um, you know, with say a voice actor who's taking your, your four week or six week class or uh, doing a couple, uh, you know, one on ones with you. And that, and that is really rewarding because you get to really see the progress and be with them through their struggles in a much more real and present way. Yeah, I always found it really interesting, too, because there were those kids who really wanted to make this their path, right? And that was great. And you could work with them on on a really high level and really intense. And then there were those kids who just kind of took the class. And those were the ones that I found really interesting because once in a while you could find one and work with them and really pull out amazing things from them that they had no idea they were capable of. And even knowing they didn't have an intention to continue to go in that direction, that wasn't the important thing. What it did is it built their confidence and gave them the ability to be in front of other people and tell a story. And that was just as rewarding in a very different way than working with those kids who really wanted to pursue the performance path. Yeah, one of the things that I find to be kind of a similar or or parallel experience is working, you know, is t- teaching, you know, a beginning acting class but and having it be a smattering of people who want to be, you know, who want to be actors, um, a few people who are taking it because it's their theater majors and it's a required course, but have no mm-hmm. interest in acting whatsoever. Yeah. And then non-majors who are taking it a- as a lark, as, a, as an elective to just sort of fill out their transcript. And also thinking it's an easy A, which they find uh, <clears throat> it is not. <laughs> not so much, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, it can be, depending on your instructor, but I, I tried to, to make it not that. So the thing that I, I found to be, you know, similar was working with the non-majors and working with the, like the, the techies and the stage managers and the, the pedagogy students who, who really had no intention of, uh, of making performance a, a lifetime focus or a career focus and finding that they would get the material oftentimes faster and more effectively than their counterparts who identified as capital A specialist actors and often give stronger performances yeah. than their counterparts who identified as actors. Cause the, the people who came in with a truly empty cup were the most teachable and the most flexible, but the ones who came in having already received some positive feedback for certain things they did, it took a lot to get them to let go of 
how tightly they held on to those habits and methods that might have gotten them positive feedback at a younger level, like early in high school or even late in high school, only to find out that they they no longer are beneficial uh, as you sort of move up through the the ladder of quality and sophistication in the craft. Well, at, at that stage, it's almost like the difference between being real and being an actor. How so? Or, or how do you mean, I, I mean to say? If you don't come with a preconceived notion of, I'm here to be an actor, right? Then you can just be real. And the performance is much more genuine, much more authentic. And actors or people who are pursuing becoming an actor are oftentimes very affected in what they do, right? And it comes because as at a younger age, they get accolades for that, for being more affected and more generally bigger and more uh, whatever, right? Yeah, because at least it's something. They're, when their peers right. just go up and give a dead reading, you know, the right. person who, who flails and pushes and, and yells and shouts is at least doing something interesting. Yeah, but, so they get accolades and they, and, and they get this preconceived notion that that is what they need to be doing. And it's like, no, honestly, it's about recreating. It's about recreating part of life so that you can share it with the audience so that they can experience it with you. So Zach, I got a question for you because you, you're obviously back into voice acting, maybe not full time, but as you know, as a significant part of what you do, what, what took you back to that? Because other than the fact that you're in Atlanta, same issues, right? Um, actually, actually, no, things are different. Things are different this time around. You know, it's funny. I, I did um, Crispin Freeman's uh, VO Mastery podcast. I, I mean, can I mention that? Are you guys like, sure. a, like a heated competition? No. Uh, for audience members? No. Com- competition? Anyway, are, you, are you serious? Um, we don't care. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he asked me, he said, you know, Zach, you have a kind of varied story. You know, you're not, you're not just an actor. You, you've done acting, but you've also done all these other things. And he was sort of giving me props for it, for having this sort of broad-based experience. And I said, you know, I, I don't want to take too much credit. I get bored. I get bored fast. <laughs> when I get yeah. bored, sometimes I have to make a really global change. As far as why I went back to voiceover, it's what I know. There's a vibrant voiceover community in Atlanta. I've had representation here since I started doing this work over 10 years ago. And I've been with the same, you know, Atlanta agent. And he's he's done really, really well for me, uh, you know, since I, I started a decade ago. And it's the bulk of my resume and CV besides academia. So it just seemed like the logical choice. Also, you know, like I said, a big part of why I went into academia was because I had had the experience of being an employee. And then I had the experience of being an independent hired gun as a voice actor and voice director for several years in Los Angeles. And I enjoyed that. And I got a lot from it. But then I was ready for the illusion of security. So I wanted a salary. So I went to academia. And then the reality of how fragile that illusion um, of security (laughs) is and the realization that, you know, during much of my time there, I did worry about losing that, losing that gig, about losing that money and having to face the reality of, you know, when you're a successful independent contractor, you got 20 clients, you lose one, you got 19. When you're an employee, you have one client. You lose that client, you're up a creek. Yeah. Um, So I, I was... I had had that experience and I was ready to go back to being a, um, a hired gun. Also, I, I had a little bit of a security cushion to make that leap again. One, I booked a, uh, a car campaign, my, my twice a decade car campaign mm-hmm. in my final year at SFA. 
mm-hmm. and that uh, built us a nest egg very rapidly that became a down payment on a house mm-hmm. um, and paid for the move. And, uh, and I had my salary on top of that. And also my wife's home business really took off. So it just was a good sort of comfortable time to, to rebuild that mm-hmm. in a new place. Nice. So in Atlanta, you have a great agent and it's a vibrant and growing community. Do you find that you get called in to do local auditions in studios, a lot like the L.A. scene or the New York scene? Or is it still pretty much remote, like most of the rest of the country? It depends on, um, well, I was going to say it depends on the gig, but actually, no, no, I, th- I think straight up, it's it's a, it's much like working in L.A. If I still lived in Nacogdoches, and, and I did work when I was in Nacogdoches, I worked either remotely or I would drive to Dallas or I would drive to Houston. So being in the metro Atlanta area, most of the time, I will go to a local pro audio studio. And the studios mm-hmm. here are fantastic. You know, they're, yeah. they're really great. They're easily comparable to the studios in Los Angeles. They've got ISDN. They've got, you know, really, really experienced people. And they also have the great sort of cushy perks. I'll go to a, uh, a studio called Acoustech, which is one of my favorite places to work. And they'll almost always buy me lunch. Or they'll have breakfast laid out, like you're at Lime Studios in uh, in Santa Monica. Right, right, yeah. It's a fairly small community. Um, I noticed that uh, you know most of the studio people know most of the voice actors. Not me so much because I'm you know still kind of new-ish as an Atlanta local performer. But um, it's really a lot like gigging in LA. The only difference is is that the gigs are sort of smaller scale. You know, it's more local stuff, more regional stuff, because so much of the national, big national stuff books out of Los Angeles. Sure. What has the effect of the Made in Georgia campaign really had, in your opinion? Honestly, um, as far as voiceover goes, I have not heard much about it having very much of an impact because the voiceover work here is to my experience and from what I've heard is not terribly related to the film and TV production. If you go to see, you know, like they do the Avengers films out here, you know, Marvel's got a foothold here. Disney has a foothold here. Um, If you go and watch these films, you know, you'll see made in Georgia at the end and you'll see all the sound stages and places in Atlanta, you know, that are referenced in the credits, but you'll also see the additional voices part of the credits and yeah. it's all it's all my old cronies from Los Angeles. It's all the L.A. work. Yeah. Yeah. There, there there's uh, you know, and I, I've brought it up with a couple of people that want to sort of open up Atlanta to looping for the film and TV work that's being done here. And I always say to them, one of the struggles that you'll face in trying to make looping in Atlanta work is that if it's a union film and the looping has to be done union, that means you're and if the actors in Los Angeles are looping at scale then you're paying the Atlanta actors at scale. So you have to make a compelling argument for why they would want to hire Atlanta loopers for the same price, but one one hundredth of the experience. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's the same argument I always have with people about like, uh, oh, we've got plenty of great video game actors here in, in Atlanta. We've got all these great actors. And I'm like, yeah, but they also have them in Los Angeles. And the guys and gals in Los Angeles have 100 credits to their name or more, and you have two. And if it's union, then those people with 100, 200, 300 credits are working for scale. Then we have to pay you the same amount, and you're only bringing two credits to the table. And it gets back to, you know, the old argument of, but I have talent too. And it's like, yeah, but you don't have experience. And if you think that experience doesn't affect the product, then 
then you're kidding yourself. And unfortunately, many, if not most actors, think this thing called talent is some- Is enough. Well, but also is something that it is not. I see talent as aptitude, but aptitude is like potential. It can be unrealized and unrealized potential isn't, isn't worth paying for. Well, the other thing I always found interesting too is talent is interesting because there is a, a minimum bar, right? And you have to be above that minimum bar with your talent just to be able to, I mean, that's table stakes, right? But everything above that, with the exception of the absolute top echelon, is fairly, I mean, there isn't a huge range difference in what will be accepted. Yeah. And that's been my experiences. It's like, as long as you're at least this good, we don't need you to be whoever good. We just need right. you to be good enough to do this and take care of it. Right. So as long as you're you're above the certain bar, everything else is kind of for the most part in the middle. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that actors, you know, you and I've had these discussions a lot. I actually teach a class on exactly that and getting any creatives to understand that talent is a component. But I completely agree with Brian that if you get above that minimum, the difference between the people who work all the time and the people who don't arguably has very little to do with their talent. You've already shown the price of entry for talent to the game. So now what else do you bring to the table? And that can be anything from did you bathe before the sessions to, uh, <laughs> to you know, I mean, yeah. you know, you're, you're easy no to No wonder work I'm with. not getting callbacks. <laughs> <laughs> they said I could do this work in my pajamas, so I came in my pajamas. That's right. <laughs> so I got a question back to the, the thing that you're talking about with experience, too. Is the argument then, like, if we're going to build up the Atlanta voice community to say, well, let's maybe build up a good non-union loop groups and things of that nature, because that's the niche that's not being filled. Quite possibly. However, I see the logic in that, and that may be very viable. I don't know enough about the Atlanta production scene yeah, and I don't to either. be able to speak to whether or not there's enough non-union film and TV work to fill that, that niche. The one monkey wrench I see in that idea is that to capitalize on the influx of production in Atlanta, film and TV production, that influx is largely union work mm -hmm. um, because it's it's runaway production from Los Angeles to Georgia. So it's companies like Disney are, are setting up shell companies in Georgia so that they can do the Marvel films or shoot, you know, some of the next Star Wars film here. So the influx of work to be taken advantage of is union. As far as whether or not there's enough non-union work to say, let's let's get started at a non-union level, you know, I just don't know. Is Georgia a right-to-work state? It absolutely is. I just went to a, a SAG-AFTRA meeting on why to join, why to go union in a right-to-work state. That was one of the major topics. Right. And what are your thoughts on that? I'm very torn. You know, I'll be honest with you, because what else would I do? Um, you know, I'm, I've been a, un a proud union member for, uh, for over a decade. I have served on multiple committees, and I've been pro-union, pro-labor, you know, workers' rights for, for a long time. And now that I'm in a right-to-work state, I do see some of the catch-22s of being like a union, you know, formerly LA actor coming to Atlanta and, and trying to hustle union. If I'm working at scale in Atlanta and another actor, like you said, who is past that minimum, who is bringing all the same things to the table in Los Angeles is also working for scale, why work with me? All else being equal. Sure. You know, one other thing is 
moving to Atlanta, it sort of forces me, if there's not a lot of union work in Atlanta, and there's there's not a lot of union voiceover work in Atlanta. A lot of the voiceovers, st- well, a lot of voiceover nationwide is non-union now. Is non-union, yeah. Yeah, but uh, in LA, there's still a ton of union work because that union work gets thrown to the LA agents. So if I move to Atlanta and I'm and I'm trying to hustle union only, it forces me to be a guy who is hustling LA, Chicago and New York remotely from Atlanta rather than an Atlanta voiceover actor who's a part of the Atlanta VO community, which includes the VO actors, the studio people and the local ad agencies. So that's a thing that has crossed my mind as well, is that by being union and being in Atlanta and only doing voiceover, I'm actually not an Atlanta voice actor in a way. Right. Because I'm not a part of the Atlanta voiceover scene. I'm I'm a part of the I'm still trying to be a part of the L.A., New York and Chicago scenes. Well, and the hardest part about that is, you know, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago are the three markets that still hold on to some of the old traditions auditions are done in our studio with our producers there those Mm -hmm. kinds of things right Mm -hmm. just about everywhere else yeah you know send me an mp3 Mm -hmm. even the video game work like where are the uh the film and production uh tax breaks um were extended to digital media production including uh video game studios and there's a a thriving video game dev community here but to my knowledge, they seem to Oh, that's to that largely... giant sucking sound coming out of Texas. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, quite possibly, quite possibly. Because Texas um, abandoned all their, uh, all their support for those kinds of endeavors, unfortunately. Well, I, I recall that sound in Los Angeles when studios like Pandemic closed and their, their people ran to Gearbox in, uh, yeah. in Frisco. So, yeah. yeah, so it's a thing, but their, their people, you know, when I, I looked to see what games they worked on, these, these devs, and I was like, oh... You all fly to Los Angeles <laughs> to record. And if you ask people locally, they'll, you know, they'll say, oh, yeah, vi- video, we do video games here. So-and-so was in The Walking Dead by Telltale. And then I'll ask somebody else and they go, oh, yeah, this other person was in The Walking Dead by Telltale. And I'm like, this is like being on Law & Order in New York. Right. All you need to be on Law & Order in New York if is... You, you have to have a pulse. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's actually, yeah. So you have to have a, yeah, you have to have a pulse. That's it. Um, and, uh, yeah, so... <laughs> So it's a tricky question, you know, does one go FICOR? Like that's the big, that's the F word to the union. And I, I see the way it um, is sort of a Benedict Arnold move because it undermines everything the union's trying to do. Sure. At the same time, if the union can't or isn't appropriately addressing its regional markets, basically of, you know, of strong value to, to voice actors in its regional markets, then uh, it, it's hard to make a strong case for saying, Make yourself unavailable for this work to serve the community. Right. And it's like, yeah, but service to the community, unfortunately, my mortgage is with Wells Fargo and they, they don't accept that. So I, I really see both sides of the, of the argument and I think they're both valid and it's a real pickle. I think they're very valid. And I think the other side of this, Brian and I, not only here, but also just with each other, have had lots of conversations about the pay-to-play sites and how they are hurting the market. And I, but I think that's a different story than somebody who goes FICOR. If you are living somewhere where you can actually make a living if you can take some non-union work, that's very different than selling your services for a ridiculous price and thinking, look, I'm a voice actor. You know, if the non-union work was actually really undercutting the market, 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes it does, but you know, I do a lot of non-union jobs, and the trade-off for being non-union is we actually go above scale. That is something you can work with. That is something you can make a living with. And I'm not saying that this is the way that things should be, but I am going to say that if the work in Atlanta, for instance, starts to really become a lot of non-union, but it pays well, you know, at some point, that's reality on the ground, isn't it? One other hitch about um, trying to be union only in Atlanta is that it's very hard to find an agent in Atlanta who will take on someone who will only accept union jobs for two reasons. One, most of the work coming across the desks of legitimate, honest Atlanta agents is Mm non-union. And second, even if that person does want to only keep you in mind for union jobs and sort of play that, that juggle, in my experience working with agents and with clients, out of sight, out of mind, if your agent mm-hmm. isn't sending you auditions on the regular Very because you're only so. open to about one in 10, yep. eventually it becomes zero in 10 because they forget about you. Yeah. Um, and that's a that's a real thing. And that's and, a real um, issue, yeah. And also, like I said, the agents in these regional markets that are doing non-union work, the legit ones they are legit. They're doing honest business. They're making a living. They're making money for their clients and they're getting their clients paid. A lot of the fears and, or a lot of the reasons one joins a union, not all of them, but many of them are ameliorated by having a good non-union agent who gets you paid and fights for a fair rate. Well, and I think if we take a look, another part of this story is really that SAG-AFTRA is really pro on camera. And I think that voiceover is the stepchild and, and kind of always has been. And there's, you know, just look at the economics and the finances behind it. It makes sense. But it's hard to see sometimes everything that SAG-AFTRA is doing for their voiceover only clientele. Mm-hmm. I don't know how this happens, but it almost feels like there should be a separate voiceover actors union that understands the ins and the outs. You know, in some ways, AFTRA, before it became SAG-AFTRA, did kind of get that. I mean, we've all done commercial work and we've all seen, you know, how they slice it out based on market size and and length of time and eyeballs, basically, um, which was always really tedious to look up. But it wasn't that hard to figure out. And it was that understanding even if it was all maybe a little too quantified, that this is a different animal. This is not just on camera. You're not just doing national TV or just doing local TV. One or two sizes fits all. It's like, well, yeah, this is actually going to be a little more complicated than that. I'm not saying that we go back to something like that, but it, it almost seems like if there could be a groundswell of energy to say, let's separate ourselves from sag after, or let's at least give something else that's an alternative I don't know. What do you think about something like that? Well, Rain and I actually had this conversation, too, and we went as far as how do you set up scale for digital work, for online work, right? If you're doing Facebook ads, what's a fair deal for a Facebook ad? Right. Nobody and knows. And how do you how do you set that up between you and the client? Google AdWords, an, uh, an online explainer video, and all of a sudden you start to get to things. And part of the problem is, is that they can have an indefinite life. And it would be interesting if some group could come up and take a look at the current state of voice acting and be able to put at least some guidelines into play. And I think that would go a long way helping to stop this evolution and growth of all the pay-to-plays and and fivers and 
I, I had a guy that I've known for 20 years call me up last week and goes, I've got a hundred bucks if you want to do a voiceover for a minute and a half thing. It's only living online. I'm like, uh, no, 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 <laughs> no, <laughs> no. That's Imagine stupid. the exposure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's it. I mean, even if I even if I got you to say, okay, fine, it was for a new startup bank. Um, this is not exclusivity, and it's not, and it's not, and it's not. It doesn't matter what I say. It still puts you out there and really cuts you off at the knees for everything else that that could possibly be there. And literally a hundred dollars. Yeah, it's like, look, dude, I don't roll out of bed for anything less than four hundred dollars and a blowjob. So. <laughs> What the hell? What you know, would you do it, for four fifty? Yeah, see, now that's the question. <laughs> that, that's that's a pretty much carte blanche. There you go. <laughs> no, oh my god. Okay, I think it's time to end this one. Um, Zach, we appreciate your time, and I'm sorry it went down this road, but it did. So. I think this is enough. Uh, end of this episode. How do we end these things? Um, Randall? BT? Zach? What do I say? Bye? Say whatever you want to say. This was great. Let's try it again. Ready? Ready? <laughs> Zach? <laughs> what? Just say BT. <laughs> say Zach? What? BT. I didn't hear what you... BT. Yeah. Okay. Let's try it. Ready? Uh-uh. Here we go. Take 17, the ending. Here we go. Zach? BT. <laughs> Until next time. Until next time. Zach, as always, pleasure talking to you. Thanks, guys. This is great fun, guys. Thank you so much. Okay. <laughs> All right. Take care. Our special thanks to one Zach Hanks. A lot of fun. Now I'm in trouble. Let's Talk VoiceOver is hosted by Randy Ryan, owner of Hamsterball Studios, voice music and sound design. And me, Brian Talbot, actor, potty mouth, an all-around creative guy. If you have comments, questions, ideas for other show topics, or you just want to let us know what you think, reach out to us by sending an email to bt at letstalkvoiceover.com or go to our website at www.letstalkvoiceover.com. That's letstalkvoiceover.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher so you don't miss an episode. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, too. Our new Twitter handle is at Let's Talk VO. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk VoiceOver. We'll talk again real soon.